Hey, so we are starting a new series. I'm calling it We Are Chosen or Just Chosen. There's this uh, Christian movie series, TV kind of series out there right now called The Chosen. And so I didn't want to get too close to that, but I wanted to spend some time studying 1 Peter with you. And there's no metaphor better for 1 Peter than this idea of being chosen. So let's talk about that for just a little bit. Let me give you a little uh, groundwork of, of what's going to be happening here over the next couple weeks. And I want to start by just acknowledging the world has a problem. There's one very specific problem that is true in our world, and it's symbolized really in a movie that is one of my favorite movies called The Matrix. And there's a couple scenes in that movie where the the hero character of the movie, his name is Neo, the hero character of the movie comes face to face with this idea that someone else thinks he has a destiny. Someone else thinks that he is going to be the hero. Someone else thinks that he is the chosen one. And yet his mindset is that he doesn't like it. He doesn't like the idea that he might be the chosen one. He doesn't like the idea that he might have a destiny. And it comes to a head at one point in the movie where the one person says to him, basically, what's your problem? And he says, I don't like the feeling that I'm not in charge of my own destiny, that I'm not in charge of my own future. And that is a thing that infects all of us. All of us, especially here in the United States, especially here in North America, do not want to have the feeling that we're not in charge of our own destiny. We want to be the kind of people who are independent. We want to be the kind of people who are free. And we don't want to be, uh, have our lives determined by something outside of us. I'm just going to call it what it is. It's rampant individualism. The problem that we have in our society is rampant individualism. This idea that I myself must determine myself and my future. And if anyone else influences me, then I don't like it. I'll I'll phrase it for you in a way that I think kind of makes sense. It basically goes like this. If we don't choose it, we don't want it. If we don't choose it, we don't want it. I can illustrate this for you very clearly. Did you know that about 70%, 60 to 75% of Americans would claim that they're Christians? And yet on any given Sunday, only 20 to 30% of people go to church. So that means, statistically speaking, we've got a lot of people who claim that they're Christians and fewer than half of them actually go to church on Sunday, which is an interesting statistic because see here it says, if I choose to go to church, it's good. And if I choose to not go to church, it's good. But if someone else tells me to go to church, uh uh-uh, I don't want it. Or if someone else tells me I can't go to church, uh uh-uh, I don't want it. All of a sudden, for some reason in our world, we're having a debate where some people are upset that they're not allowed to go physically to a building and experience church in that building, or that there are circumstances that are restricting them from doing so. And I'm thinking to myself as a pastor, you know, my cynicism is like, well, where were you six months ago? You know, what? all of a sudden you're excited about going to church. Okay, fine then, go to church. Uh, 
watch the live stream or something like that. Or, or in our context, we actually have the room open for some people, you know, who let us know in advance they're planning on coming. But see, here's the thing. It's such rampant individualism that there are aspects of this current modern world, particularly with Christians, that boggle my mind. And I know some people think um, that I've crossed the line into being political about too many times. And I just, you know, I'm, I care less anymore. And one of the issues that I find to be absolutely fascinating is the fact that Christians, for some reason, think it's inappropriate for them to wear masks in public. That for some reason, I've heard this on the news, I've heard snippets. Now, I know it's not all Christians, but it's a, some people are saying God intended for us to breathe freely. And so I'm not going to put any mask over my face because God intended for us to breathe the air freely. And they use their Christianity as sort of an excuse for why they don't wear masks in public. And I conclude that something is wrong with us because Christians are those who believe in Jesus, who says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Christians are those who believe in Jesus, who says, love each other as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Christianity has at its core an idea that we sacrifice ourselves and our own convenience for the sake of others. We sacrifice ourselves and our own convenience for the sake of others. There's something about this whole mask wearing thing in our current context that makes me absolutely flabbergasted that Christians would be against doing anything that might possibly protect someone else. And it is because I believe we have a problem. And the problem is that Christians, just like everyone else in North America, have been infected with rampant individualism. Christians, just like everyone else in North America, have been infected with this idea that if I don't choose it, I don't want it. And sometimes you can convince me to choose it for myself, but I won't ever do it unless I choose it for myself. What's ironic about this rampant individualism is that it is exactly the same thing that got Eve into trouble in the garden. When God says, there's a tree that you can't eat from, and she says, looks good to me, and she and her husband eat. This rampant individualism that says, I will determine my own destiny, I will determine my own choices, I will make my own decisions is what got us into trouble in the first place. It's the root cause of sin. It's infected all of us. And for some reason, Christians are just as infected. But there's a solution. And there's a solution that is found in 1 Peter. And once you understand what the solution is, you will immediately react negatively against it. And that is proof that it's true. It's proof that it's true because what I'm about to tell you about who you are and what I'm about to tell you about what 1 Peter teaches us is something that in our world today, especially among a large proportion of Christians, but definitely all Americans, is a principle that cuts at the core of who we think we are so deeply that you might negatively react against it. The first words that I speak about this, you are not going to react negatively against it because we just sang it in a happy manner. But as we get deeper into it, you might find yourself having some problems with it. Here it is. The solution to our problem of rampant individualism is simply these three words. We are chosen. 
Now, the thing about the word chosen is that you're not the one who did it. If we say that we are chosen, that means someone else has done the choosing. If we are chosen, that means we are the recipient of a choice. We are the end of a choice, not the agent of the choice. But that is exactly what Peter is trying to show us. Now, in this letter, Peter writes a letter to uh, the, some believers that we're going to be finding all, out, all about in just a little moment here. But let me remind you who Peter is. Peter is a fellow who um, denied Jesus. Peter is a fellow who always told Jesus that he knew what was right and Jesus didn't. Because see, when Jesus said he was about to take up a cross, uh, Peter said, no, Jesus, you don't have to do that. And Jesus said to Peter, no, you're, you're acting like Satan, get behind me. Or when Jesus was saying goodbye to some friends who had visited from heaven, uh, we're talking about Moses and Elijah, Peter said, no, let's keep them here for a while. And a voice out of heaven said, listen to him, not yourself. And Peter is the fellow that you need to remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was getting captured to go to the cross, which he had already prophesied was going to happen. Peter tried to intervene by taking a sword and cutting off the guy's ear, who was a servant to one of the chief priests. Peter is a guy who always takes matters into his own hands, or at least he used to. And now he's writing a letter to people who don't have all of the things in their life in their own hands. And he has to give them the solution. And you see, the problem with this rampant individualism is that it prevents us from understanding who we are, it prevents us from understanding salvation, and it prevents us from understanding what God is up to in this world. Let me show you what Peter says. In 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And you know I always have to stop at the first line because the first line gives us the indication of who Peter is. As we read through the first few verses, I want you to be asking yourself this question. Who is Peter? Who are we? How do we get here? And what do we do about it? That's basically what we're supposed to be thinking about. So who is Peter? He says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say anything else. Now, what you need to know is that apostle for Peter is not like what it is for us. We hear the word apostle as if it's a title, uh, like the word president or chief or something like that. We hear Peter and we put a capital A, apostle of Jesus. We think it's a title. Peter is not using it as a title because in his day, apostle actually was a word that meant something. It literally meant one who's been sent. Because apostello is the word message, and so an apostolos is one with a message, a person who has a message, a person who's been given a message. In other words, he is a sent one. Peter's identity, the only thing he tells us about his identity in this verse is that he has been sent by Jesus. Not that he chose to go, not that he is willing to go, not that he is doing anything on his own, but that someone else has made a decision for him and that's who he is. In other words, Peter says, who I am is who Jesus says I am. Who I am is a choice someone else has made. Keep going. He then says, to God's elect. Now, you gotta realize what elect means. Elect doesn't mean that God voted for you. Elect means that God chose you. 
A person who has been elected is a person who has been chosen by whatever means is used to make the choice. But to say that you are God's elect means that God has chosen you. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Let me just highlight this for you. So he says he is writing this to God's elect. Now, a lot of people have debated who the elect are in this passage. Some people think that the elect are God's, um, the people of Israel, you know, God's quote-unquote chosen people, that those are the elect ones. And so Peter is writing this letter to Israelites who've been scattered all over. I don't think that's the case. I think Peter, as you read the rest of this letter, you realize he is not writing directly to Jewish people. He's writing to a wider audience than that. And so what he is saying is he's saying that God's people are everywhere. God's people are scattered all over the place. And I'm writing to all of them. I don't have a specific church in mind. Peter says, I'm writing to all of these people spread out all over the place. Anyone who's a Christian anywhere, I'm writing to. That includes you. That includes me. That means if Peter says something in here, he is saying it to you and to me. We are elect, maybe. If you are elect, the letter is going to you. If you're not, then it's not. But he's writing to the elect. So here's the thing. Who is Peter? He's an apostle. Who are we? We are those who've been chosen and scattered. That's a weird thing. We've been scattered throughout the provinces, all over the world, but we've been chosen. Do you see that? We were chosen, elect, scattered, and chosen. Peter's trying to say that it doesn't matter where you are now. The bookends of your life are that you've been chosen. God chose you, and he chose you, even though you're somewhere you didn't want to be, even though you're somewhere that doesn't make sense for you. You feel like you're scattered. He even calls us exiles. But there's one other thing that I want you to see here. What did God do? Verse 2, you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Okay, how did you get chosen? God knew something, and he chose you. You were chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. How'd you get chosen? The Spirit did something for you. And to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. How did you get chosen? Jesus shed his blood. The Father knew something. The Spirit did something. Jesus shed his blood and you get chosen. Quick question for you before we go any farther into this chapter. How much of that did you do? Were you the one who knew in advance? Were you the one who shed your blood? Were you the one who did the work of sanctification in your heart? How much of that work are you responsible for? Answer, none. Nothing. Peter is writing to people and he says, God did everything for you. And why did he do it? Verse 2 at the end, to be obedient and so that you could be a person of grace and peace. Let me just give you the blunt answer to who we are. All believers are chosen by God for his purposes. 
All believers are chosen by God for his purposes. And this is where things get a little bit rough. Because, see, I know as soon as I say the phrase, all believers are chosen by God for his purposes, there are going to be some people who think, well, wait a minute, don't I have a choice in the matter? When I was a little kid, someone told me I needed to pray and ask Jesus into my heart. Didn't I have a choice in the matter? Wasn't it my choice that invited Jesus to come into my life? Isn't it my choice to walk with him daily? And Peter's response is, hang on a second here. Have you heard any of the things that I've said already? I am writing to people who are believers. I am a person who didn't take any action to make myself what I am. I'm an apostle because Jesus chose. And you are God's chosen people. Even though you're scattered, you are God's chosen people. And he chose you so that you would be obedient. And he chose you so that you could have grace and so that you could have joy. But he chose you for his purposes, not yours. I'm chosen. But what about free will? Don't I have responsibility in my life? Well, I'll I'll quickly give you an easy answer and a hard answer. The easy answer is that anytime the Bible is talking to someone who's not a believer, it will say you have a responsibility. You need to choose to follow God. You need to repent of your sins. You need to be baptized. You need to put your faith in Jesus. You need to follow God. And if you've never done that, if you've never done that, that is your responsibility. You have to do that. But whisper, whisper, anytime the Bible is talking to someone who is already a believer, they tap them on the shoulder and say, oh, by the way, do you know how it happened? It happened because God picked you. Do you know why you chose God? Because he chose you first. Do you know why you responded to God? Because he revealed himself to you in advance. You were chosen. I know we told you you needed to make a choice, but now you need to realize that you are who you are because you were chosen. Past tense, God's activity. But there's a hard way to answer that question too. And it's simply this, why are you asking it? If you ask the question, well, what about free will? I want to throw it back to you and ask you, why do you want to know? See, for some of us, we want to take credit for our own salvation. We want to take credit for our own spiritual maturity. We want to take credit for our own relationship with God. And we do that by telling ourselves it was our choice, that we're a good enough person, that we made this choice to enter the family of God. Those other people didn't. And that's the other thing. Some of us want this thing about free will to exist so that we can then point the finger at other people and treat them as if they are less human than we are. Those people are rebellious. They haven't responded to Jesus. Those people are evil. They haven't followed Jesus. I'm a good person because I follow Jesus. Those people are not. And our problem is that as soon as we enter into this idea that I had something to do with my own salvation, I can point my finger at other people and blame them for their own distance from God. But Peter would say something different. He would say, you are chosen. You don't get any credit for that. And you don't get the right to blame. Take a look at the next verse, verse 3. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, Quick question for you. Uh, What involvement did you have in your own birth? Uh, It's an interesting metaphor that he uses here. 
He says, God gave us a new birth. Let me tell you something about birth. You didn't choose to have it happen in your life. You didn't choose when it would happen in your life. And you can't undo it. You were born, and that's all it is. You had nothing to do with getting to the point of being born. You had nothing to do with deciding when you would be born. And you have nothing that you can do to undo your birth. Birth is something that someone else does and you receive. That's it. And he uses that metaphor here in this passage. Keep going. He says he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. I'm going to pause there again for just a little moment. Peter is saying that you were born into this family. This family has an inheritance kept in heaven. And since you are in the family, the inheritance is guaranteed to you. There's nothing you can do to get out of the inheritance. Because the inheritance has been guaranteed to you. You were born into the family. You are an heir. Therefore, you have this inheritance. That inheritance isn't an earthly one. It's a heavenly one. And therefore, it is guaranteed. Guaranteed for you. And it will never perish, spoil, or fade. But, look at verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice. Yeah, I greatly rejoice that I've got an eternal reward waiting for me. Though, now for a little while... You may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You see, I've got an inheritance that's wonderful, but I've got a grief that's today. These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Listen, um, as we look at this passage, you're going to now begin to see this tension where God has supposedly chosen his people And God has supposedly guaranteed them a future, a future inheritance, a blessing. And yet somehow the life they're experiencing right now is grief-filled. Somehow the life they're experiencing right now is troublesome. The life they're experiencing right now is filled with trials. Somehow even though they've been chosen and even though a blessing is waiting for them, there are trials that they are going through. I don't know, do you relate to this? Do you relate to the fact that you might be going through a trial or a hardship or some grief moment and then you wonder in the midst of your grief moment, did God really do anything in my life? Did God really choose me? Has God really promised me a blessing? I'm going through difficulty. And Peter's trying to say, listen, this is the way the Christian life works. Believers are born, not made, not constructed, not they sneak their way in through the back door. Believers are born into a difficult but guaranteed blessing. Believers are born into a difficult but guaranteed blessing. 
I think so many times we think that being chosen by God means being comfortable with life. And it doesn't. Or we think being blessed by God means being comfortable today. And it doesn't. Peter is writing to people who are scattered all over the place, who have no identity in their own, and he's trying to remind them, you've been chosen. There's a blessing that's been promised, even though you're going through hard time. But notice something else. That hard time they're going through, that hard time is also a blessing. Did you see what the hard time produces in them? Verse 8, you love Jesus You believe in Jesus and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What's interesting is that Peter is saying these trials that you face, the trials all by themselves increase your salvation. The trials, because of your faith, the trials mixed with your faith increase your salvation, increase your awareness of your salvation, increase your awareness of your love for Jesus. And how much work in that passage do you do? Literally nothing. I'm a person who believes. That's the only responsibility I have in this passage. I believe. And if I stay in the belief, in the midst of the trials, everything else just happens automatically. That's an amazing thing that he would be saying. Because you've been chosen, these things have been promised, the trials have come so that your faith may be proven genuine, so that you can be receiving the end result of your faith. A lot of times we think of difficulty as a problem. And yet Peter would be saying difficulty is the blessing. It's part of the guaranteed blessing. Verse 10. Now he's going to talk about the salvation that he just mentioned that you're receiving. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. This is a complicated little passage. Later on this week, I'm going to do a devotional on our church devotional uh, site, on our website, uh, to unpack this a little bit. Today, I'm going to give you just the summary of it. Basically, what he's saying is, you have received a salvation. Let me tell you a secret about this salvation. Prophets long ago knew something about it. They wrote it down, but they didn't know what it meant. They couldn't understand it. They had received from the Spirit of Christ a message, and they wrote it down, but they didn't really understand it. They couldn't understand it. Then, that message was looked into by angels. They're like, look at these prophets. Look at what these prophets wrote down. Can you make any sense of that? And the angel said to the other angel, no, I don't know what it's saying. God, what is this all about? And God says, it's a special thing. I'm I'm going to reveal it later. And the angel's like, but I'd love to know the answer to this. And God says, I know you would. I made you that way. So the angels long to look into these things. The prophets don't understand it. The angels don't understand it. But guess what? You received it and you believed it, and you understand it, and it's because the Holy Spirit took these things and brought them to you so you could understand it. 
These things are unbelievable. These things are not understandable. These things are beyond human comprehension. These things are beyond angelic comprehension. And somehow, for some reason, you get it. That's miraculous. You have been given, we have been given, an unbelievable gospel. Or the word gospel in the New Testament is really just a transliteration of a version of the word good news. We've been given an unbelievable good news. And no one's understood it except for us. That's not because you're special. It's not because you're more smart. It's not because you're better than anyone else. Even angels don't get this stuff. But for some reason, you do. You can't take credit for that. A miracle was done in your life, even to the point of helping you understand what this was all about. But keep going. Because, see, here's the deal. If I have been chosen by God for his purpose, if his purpose includes bringing me blessings that even take me through difficulty, if his purpose is letting me know some secrets that no one in the history of the world has ever known before, if his purpose is to do all of these amazing things in my life, what does he want to come from my life? How do I take this home with me? What difference does it make in my life? Well, the rest of chapter 1, Peter gives us a list of things. Four things that I want to share with you. First, verse 13. He says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. There are three things that he says there in that verse that you need to have true. Number one, you need to have a mind that is engaged. You need to have a mind that is engaged, okay? You've got your mind engaged. I would call that your thoughts. Number two, he says, you need to set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. Something is coming in the future, and you need to set your hope on that. That is your attitude. And in between those two things, uh, he uses this word sober, with minds that are alert and fully sober. That means you are in self-control. You are in control of your behaviors. You know how your thoughts and your attitudes combine to do something in your life. And so phrase it this way. Prepare yourself. Your thoughts, your behaviors, and your attitudes. You want these things to be in sync. You want these things to be in line with what God has for you. And so let's look at verse 14. He now says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it's written, be holy because I am holy. What he's saying there is that you've got a choice. You've got a choice to be impulsive and just follow your desires. All the desires you've always had your whole life, you can follow them or you can be different. See, the word holy just means different. It means set apart. It means special. It means my life is no longer about that stuff. My life is now about something different. He would say, Peter would say, be holy like your heavenly father is holy, not impulsive. You know what's weird about impulse? Isn't it funny how frequently we get impulse confused with choice? I mean, it happens all the time. You've got the chocolate cake on your counter. And you think, I'm going to choose to have a piece of chocolate cake. 
But did you really make a choice? Did you make an actual choice to eat that piece of chocolate cake, or was it just an impulse? Because five minutes ago, when you had that piece of cake, that one was an impulse, and so now it's five minutes later, and you're thinking about having that second piece of cake, that's also just an impulse. It's funny how frequently we get our impulsive desires confused with choice. And Peter's trying to say, listen, I want you to be people who have been chosen by a holy God. Be holy, not just impulsive. Look at verse 7. He now says, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially. By the way, that's a threat. He's writing that as a threat. Your heavenly father judges everyone impartially. That's a threat. He's not going to look at you and say, oh yeah, but I like you. I won't judge you as harshly for that thing. He's not going to look at you and be like, oh, you know what? They're looking really good today. It's a good hair day for them, so I think I'll go easy on them. No, God judges everyone impartially, which means if you've done something that deserves judgment, judgment is on its way. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here, that means strangers on earth, in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. He does this weird thing. Peter says, God judges everyone impartially, so you should be afraid. But he doesn't say you should be afraid because God is going to judge you. He says you should be afraid because of how much it costs to buy your forgiveness. How much it costs to buy your forgiveness. Jesus, the Holy One, shed his blood. And you've been forgiven and you've been given grace. And as a result of being given grace, now you are forgiven. He doesn't say you need to be afraid of judgment. He says you need to be in fear because of how much it costs. Don't take your salvation for granted. One more thing. Verse 22. He says, now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you've sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, there it is again, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. What Peter is saying here at the end, he says, you are in an eternal family. You've been born into an eternal family. You didn't choose it. It chose you. You've been born into an eternal family. And guess what? Since you're in it, live like it. Since you're in the eternal family, live like you're in a forever family. You're going to see these people for the rest of eternity. You might as well learn to love them now. Love them deeply from the heart. Develop and cultivate a love for God's people. Because listen, all people are like grass, but God's word endures forever. And if his word is in you, he's making you to be an eternal person. This body, this life, all this stuff is going to burn. But you and the souls of the people around you are eternal. Live 
like a forever family. So he gives four things at the end of this chapter by way of just sort of encouraging us to put four things into practice. But the overall picture is something that I want you to grab onto all week long. And as you spend this week in prayer, each one of these days, I'm going to be releasing a little devotional based on some of the stuff we talked about today and uh, to coincide with maybe some of the videos that we're doing, we're going to be posting, I'm going to be posting video every day that uh, someone else hasn't already submitted one. And so we're going to be talking through this a little bit. But what I want you to realize is that this idea that you have been chosen is simultaneously unsettling because we all want to be in charge of our own destiny. But it's also liberating. Because see, I've been chosen by God. How do I know? Well, I know because I've put my faith in Jesus and and no one understands who Jesus is and what he's all about except for those who've been chosen. God chose me. I'm forgiven. I'll just be whoever he says I am. As you go through the rest of this week, as you go through the rest of this month, as we try to continue to figure out what life under coronavirus is like, I want to encourage you to realize this thing. You've been chosen by God. You've been given birth by God. Now, if you have not received Jesus, today is your day. God is in the process of choosing you right now through my words. And he is asking for you to respond. And he's saying, would you put your faith in Jesus and would you turn towards me and embrace this family? And you can do that wherever you are. You can just pray and say, God, I'm in. I want to be in. Show me what my next steps are. Contact us. Let us know how we can be helping you. But if you are in, if you've received this gift, if you know that you have been chosen by God, then by all means, live with that knowledge. Don't live in fear. Don't live in confusion. Don't live in worry. Don't live in a, in a sense that you have to defend yourself or defend your rights or stand up for yourself in some way. Instead, you can be free to be the person who acts like Jesus. You can be free to be the person who represents a loving heavenly father. You can be free to recognize that you don't have to Make all your own choices because there's a God who's laid out a pathway for you to walk. Just walk in it. And so I want to invite you to spend this week recognizing that you are a chosen person, to live in it, to live by it, to walk in it, and to be grateful to God who has chosen you. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.